and Radio Derb is on the air. This is your appreciatively genial host, John Derbyshire, with VDare.com's weekly roundup from the Newswires. Before I proceed this week, let me just urge you to check out, if you haven't already, the video clip of Lydia and Peter Brimelow talking about the latest developments in New York State's Attorney General Letitia James' lawfare assault on VDare.com. The clip is not very long, less than 20 minutes, and it's easy to follow. Plain, temperate talk from two eloquent patriots. The video clip is right there with an accompanying transcript on the website and also at Twitter under the VDARE handle. Watch or read. And if you can, please donate. Thank you. Now for a glance at the news. First, Europe. Mass migration from the barbarous to the civilised zone continues apace. Regime media in the civilised countries mostly prefer to say nothing about it. And of course, politicians in those countries strongly prefer to do nothing about it. There are some flickers of sanity in the gloom, though. There was, for example, Wednesday's election in Holland. The biggest share of votes was won by Geert Wilders' PVV, the Party for Freedom. Wilders is a veteran of 20 years campaigning against Muslim immigration into Europe. If the Muzis have a master list of targets for assassination somewhere, he's got to be top of the list. That biggest share of votes was 24%. It doesn't actually sound very big, but there were 18 parties on the ballot for voters to choose from. Holland is one of those proportional representation parliamentary democracies that always end up with a coalition government. There were, as I said, 18 parties to vote for. The runners-up to Wilders' 24% were parties with 16, 15 and 13%. Wilders' populism doesn't stop at immigration control. For years, he's been stamping on the toes of Dutch good thinkers. He's scoffed at climate change as a leftist fad. He wants Holland to leave the European Union, to go back to having its own national currency and to stop sending weapons to Ukraine. Dutch News, an English-language left-wing outlet, noted with dismay that less educated voters favoured Wilders by much higher margins than did those with college degrees. They sobbed that, sob, 
This election blew open the myth of the Netherlands as a land of equal opportunities and exposed a sense of despair at the lower end of the social and educational scale. For whatever reason, those voters connected more strongly with Wilder's rhetoric, blaming their difficulties on migrants, than the concrete plans by other parties to raise minimum wages and ease the tax burden. End sob. Populism is stirring all over Europe. In France, Marine Le Pen's National Rally is at second place in the polls, nipping at the heels of President Emmanuel Macron. Germany's AFD party is also now second in that country's polls. Giorgio Meloni's Brothers of Italy party is in power. There are counter-currents elsewhere in Europe. Lefty Pedro Sánchez remains Prime Minister of Spain after the July election, although not without huge populist protests still ongoing. Last month's election in Poland will likely produce a centre-left government, although a coalition is still being negotiated. While, on the upside, a concurrent referendum turned up a 90 vote against mass third world immigration. And in all these multi-party parliamentary democracies, coalition governments are the rule, with all the compromises that involves. There are deep states to be reckoned with too, as I spoke about last week in relation to Britain. Man Proposes, God disposes, goes the old saying, with equivalence in every language known to me. French, l'homme propose, Dieu dispose. German, der Mensch denkt's, Gott lenkt's, and so on. Oh, you want the Chinese? Moshe Zaijen. There you go. In the managerial state, which is today the style of government all over the civilised world, voters and politicians propose, human rights lawyers and bureaucrats dispose. Georgia Maloney learned that in the Lampedusa crisis two months ago. Still, there are these flickers of sanity, though. I'll take what I can get. A footnote to that. Not only are there flickers of sanity against the Great Replacement over in Europe, in Ireland, a proud member of the European Union and a popular destination for illegal aliens from Africa and the Middle East, in Ireland there have also been flickers of rebellion. Thursday afternoon, an immigrant from North Africa stabbed a woman and three children outside an elementary school in inner-city Dublin. The woman and one of the children, a five-year-old girl, 
are in a serious condition in hospital as I go to tape here. The other two children, aged five and six, have less serious injuries. When the news came out, people took to the streets. There have been major riots. A hotel housing illegal aliens has been burned, as well as a tram, a double-decker bus and a police car. There was kindling lying around before this spark landed in it. Quote from the Newsweek report. There have been ongoing protests across Ireland against asylum seekers amid a housing crisis. Many hotels and guest houses have been converted to asylum accommodation, leading to protests by people in towns affected by lower tourist income. End quote. This violent reaction to the school stabbing may have been inflamed by the fact that the elementary school attacked is run with the Irish language, with Gaelic, that is. As a person born and educated in England, I well know how inflammable Irish patriotism is. In fact, I shall offer a word of advice, free of charge, to any illegals on their way to the Emerald Isle. Don't mess with the Irish. Oh, the Irish government's response to the riots? They have promised more laws against hate speech. As Keith Woods tweeted, tweet, the government is more concerned about natives expressing hate than they are about migrants stabbing children on the street. More new laws to silence the Irish people. This is a state at war with its nation. End tweet. For all the drawbacks of multi-party coalition-building government, they are at least spared the two-party trap. What's the two-party trap? Well, imagine you are a voter in a nation that's had just two major parties alternating in government for as long as anyone can remember. Go on, just try to imagine it. Sure, there are third parties you can vote for, but those two big parties have the mighty force of inertia on their side. Campaign funding has been directed to them for so long that huge, powerful blocks of voters are locked into them. Labour unions on the left, for example, and big corporations on the right. There's an inertia of voter psychology, too. A reluctance to take third parties seriously. Heck, I've always voted for the People's Progressive Party. It's the party of the little guy, isn't it? Or contrarywise, 
I'm a National Salvation Party loyalist, same as my dad. The people's progressives are just a bunch of commies. Thence to the two-party trap. What if you strongly favour some policy, immigration restriction for example, but both the big parties oppose it? You can vote third party, but A, they are poorly funded and not likely to win, and B, at least the two big ones have lots of experience at operating the machinery of government. If that third party gets in, how long will it take them to climb the learning curve? Britain's voters face a particularly nasty version of the two-party trap in 2024. I apologise for falling back on the old country as a news source after last week's Britathon, but the parallels here are obvious and instructive. Under Britain's constitution, the Prime Minister has to call a general election before January 2025, although the precise date is his to choose. So 2024 is election year over there, same as over here. And yes, there are two big parties over there, the Labour Party and the Conservative Party a.k.a. the Tories. There is also a significant third party, the Liberal Democrats. They actually formed a European-style governing coalition with the Tories from 2010 to 2015. That was highly unusual, though. The Liberal Democrats currently hold 15 seats in the 650-seat House of Commons. Less than 2.5%. Sure, the Lib Dems might do better next year, but voter inertia will keep them down. Current polling has them at 12%. The Tories at 25 Labour at 46 It'll be a two-party election. Immigration should be a huge issue. All the huger because of figures released this week when the Office for National Statistics published the number for net immigration in 2022. 745,000. Nearly three quarters of a million. That is a sensational number and a politically scandalous one for the Tories. Prior to the 2010 election, when the number was coming close to 300,000, Tory candidate David Cameron promised voters that if they elected a Tory government, net migration would be, quote, reduced to the tens of thousands, end quote. The Tories were duly elected, but the reduction didn't happen. Five years later, in 2015, the number was heading for 400,000. There was enough dissatisfaction over this to fuel the 2016 Brexit vote to leave the European Union, 
which voters thought would restore Britain's ability to control its own borders. The Tories continued in power down to the present day. Cameron resigned after Brexit, though, and a succession of Tory prime ministers followed, all of them promising to get net immigration numbers down. None of them did so. When Boris Johnson resigned last July, following scandals and rebellions in his party, the latest number was over 450,000 for 2021. Now we know that the number for 2022, Johnson's last year, was 745,000. Executive Summary After 13 years of Tory government under five Tory Prime Ministers, every one of them vowing to get the immigration number down, starting from under 300,000 and a promise from the Tory candidate to get it down to five digits, it is today heading fast towards seven digits. Inescapable conclusion... The Tory party is utterly useless at immigration control. So what's a British voter to do next year? If two-party inertia holds, which I hereby predict it will, he'll vote for the Labour Party candidate. What's the Labour Party like on immigration? They love it. Let's bring in more. Legacy white British are now just 37% of the population of London. When I went up to college there in 1963, it was 97%. Other big cities likewise. Nationwide, legacy white British were 78% in 2019, likely 76% now. The Great Replacement is seriously underway over there. So, on an issue they are seriously troubled about, British voters next year face the two-party trap. On immigration, the Tory party is useless, the Labour Party worse than useless. Disaffected Tory voters can't stop the Great Replacement by voting. They can, however, vote Labour and thereby at least derive some grim satisfaction by poking their collective finger in the eye of the Tory party. That is what they'll do. Do we in the USA face a two-party trap of our own? The regime would sure like us to, but we may have an out. Our two parties are, of course, the Democrats and the Republicans. We don't have to speculate about the great replacement consequences of a Democrat win next November. We've been living with those consequences for nigh on three years already. One of the lesser consequences, just down the road from me, is the impending bankruptcy of New York City, 
city finances being crushed under the weight of illegal aliens. Are Republicans any better? That will depend who's on the ticket in November. Present odds are it will be one of the following three. In order by probability. Donald Trump, Nikki Haley or Ron DeSantis. To take them in reverse order, Ron DeSantis sounds fine. Six months ago, he signed into law a bill for the state of Florida that mandates punishment for employers of illegal aliens and prohibits them presenting any kind of ID card, among other things. A few weeks later, he publicly promised to end birthright citizenship. He's also said he'll tax remittances to family members abroad, deport Biden's illegals and send our military to the southern border. DeSantis hasn't spoken much about legal immigration, but the little he has said has been sensible and patriotic. Promoting training and education for jobs in financial technology, for example. What's not to like? There will, of course, be obstacles to overcome. The seriously cucked Republican Party to begin with. Then the deep state culture of defiance. On his record, though, DeSantis seems to be an honest man who knows how to get things done. We can hope. Nikki Haley... Her most recent reported statement on immigration, or at any rate the most recent one I've noticed, was a couple of weeks ago at a campaign stop in New Hampshire when she told her supporters, quote, For too long, Republican and Democrat presidents dealt with immigration based on a annual quota. We'll take X number this year, We'll take X number next year. The debate is on the number. It's the wrong way to look at it. We need to do it based on merit. We need to go to our industries and say, in a quote, What do you need that you don't have? End in a quote. So, think agriculture, think tourism, think tech. We want the talent that's going to make us better. End quote. Breitbart, whence I am quoting this, adds helpfully that, quote, Haley's reference to think tech refers to the many white-collar careers that are now being filled by cheap and compliant foreign graduates instead of available and trained American graduates, end quote. Straight down the line, Chamber of Commerce stuff, in other words. Nicky, Nicky, cast down your bucket where you are. And then Trump. I told you two weeks ago when I gave you a full three minutes of the man himself, I told you that he's taking a strong line against illegals. 
the largest domestic deportation operation in American history, etc. That's good. And we can be sure it's good, because when he used that same phrase, the largest domestic deportation operation in American history, when he used it back in September, it sent the New York Times to the fainting couch. They ran a breathless report in the November 11th edition of the newspaper, gasping that, for example, quote, he, that is Trump, he plans to scour the country for unauthorised immigrants and deport people by the millions per year. End quote. The Times was especially horrified by Trump's intention to build big holding camps for illegals awaiting deportation. Quote, with inner quotes here from Stephen Miller, Trump's White House aide. Mr. Trump wants to build huge camps to detain people while their cases are processed and they await deportation flights. Because of the magnitude of arrests and deportations being contemplated, the plan is to build, in a quote, vast holding facilities that would function as staging centres, and in a quote, for immigrants as their cases progress and they wait to be flown to other countries. Mr. Miller said the new camps would likely be built in a quote, on open land in Texas near the border. End in a quote. He said the military would construct them under the authority and control of the Department of Homeland Security. While he cautioned that there were no specific blueprints yet, he said the camps would look professional and similar to other facilities for migrants that have been built near the border. End of New York Times quote. George Fishman, who is the senior legal fellow at the Centre for Immigration Studies, George Fishman had fun with that over at the CIS website, November 20th. Fishman reminded us of the Hesburg Commission. Full name the Select Commission on Immigration and Refugee Policy, set up by the Jimmy Carter administration in 1978. The Commission's recommendations included, in edited summary, 1. An interagency body should be established to develop contingency plans for opening and managing federal processing centres for handling possible mass asylum emergencies. Two, this planning body should develop contingency plans for opening and managing federal asylum processing centres where asylum applicants would stay while their applications were processed quickly and uniformly. The Commission explained that among the important benefits of these processing centres would be more edited summary 1. Ineligible 
asylum applicants would not be released into communities where they might later evade U.S. efforts to deport them, or create costs for local governments. Two, a deterrent would be provided for those who might see an asylum claim as a means of circumventing U.S. immigration law. Applicants would not be able to join their families or obtain work while at the processing center. Three, law enforcement problems, which might arise as a result of a sudden influx of potential asylees, could be minimized. So, forty years ago, this commission, this Hesburgh Commission. Was proposing steps that look very much like Trump's plans for detention and removal. The proposals were incorporated in immigration law in the 1980s and 1990s, although they seem not to have been very vigorously acted upon. And this was a very highfalutin commission. The Reverend Theodore Hesburgh, the chairman of the commission, was as respectable as it is possible to be. President of the University of Notre Dame, former chairman of the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights, awardee of the Presidential Medal of Freedom, and then later in 1999, long after the commission had finished and published its recommendations. The Reverend Hesburgh was awarded the Congressional Gold Medal. That award was approved in the House of Representatives by voice vote, and passed in the Senate by unanimous consent. Fishman concludes his piece at the CIS website with the following rhetorical questions: "Quote." Should the Trump campaign rebrand its plan by calling for processing centers? For that matter, should Congress award Stephen Miller the Congressional Medal of Honor? End quote. My advice to Stephen Miller would be: Don't hold your breath. Oh, you want to know where Donald Trump stands on? Legal immigration. I'm sure he will tell us any day now. Thanksgiving dinner with old friends at their house. We have known each other for thirty years, since Mrs. Derbyshire and Mrs. Old Friend both took their toddlers, our daughter, her son, to a local playgroup. The toddlers are now working adults. All through those decades, excepting a pause in COVID time, we've kept up the custom of Thanksgiving dinner at their house, and July Fourth or Labor Day barbecue at ours. Their family is bigger than ours, so there was quite a host around the table. Mister Old Friend had a son from a previous marriage. The son is himself married now, with two fine young sons of his own. All were present 
together with Mrs. Oldfriend's sister and her husband. The dinner was great, especially the stuffing. There seems to be some kind of anti-Turkey movement underway on social media. Turkey tastes awful. Why do we eat it? Duck is way better, etc., etc. As a reactionary traditionalist, I am naturally of the other party. Who cares which bird tastes better? It's Thanksgiving. Old friend Junior teaches in a New York City public school. He has stories. I used to think that cops have the best stories, followed by military men and then doctors. Listening to Junior, I find myself reflecting that big city public school teachers should be in the list there somewhere. Me. Across the dinner table, have you been getting any of the illegal aliens the city's taken in? He, oh yeah, one or two in every class. Me, how are they? Are they trouble or what? He, not much trouble, but I can't teach them anything. They don't speak English. Me, really? So, what do they do in class all day long? He, they just sit there. They play on their phones. The ones that have them. Urban education in the mid twenty-first century. Tell me again, if you can, that we are not in steep civilizational decline. And Junior's school is in a not bad neighborhood of New York City. You know what I mean by not bad neighborhood, right? Of course you do. There is much worse elsewhere. Quote from a news story out of Charlottesville, Virginia. Quote. Friday was a breaking point for teachers at CHS. Students roaming the hallways during class, brawls in the common areas, intruders let onto school premises, teachers afraid for their own safety, administrators unwilling or unable to discipline. Things are not okay at Charlottesville High School. On Friday. Classes were abruptly cancelled when teachers did not show up to work. The decision by so many school employees to call out appears to have been prompted by a series of wild student brawls that occurred the day before. At least one of those fights included an eighteen-year-old intruder. Who does not even attend CHS, and who was let into the school by a student for the sole purpose of perpetrating violence? End quote. The Charlottesville High School student body is forty-five percent white, 
29% black, 14% Hispanic, 7% mixed and 6% Asian. Both the principal and the town school's superintendent are black, although the principal announced his resignation earlier this month. A teacher at CHS told us something that I figured out for myself. Quote, There's about 30 kids that never go to class and have not gone to class from the first day. They've never intended to go to class and do nothing but walk the halls and avoid adults. If an adult approaches them, they swear at them, keep walking, and there are no consequences. Those 30 kids set the tone for the rest of the 1,400 kids in the school. End quote. Just 30 out of 1,400? The solution seems straightforward. Just punish the 30. Make an example of them, right? Wrong. This is woke land we're in here. Nothing is straightforward. Straightforwardness is old thinking, white thinking, like punctuality, objectivity, hard work, and getting the right answer on a math test. Further quote from the Charlottesville story. CHS councillor David Wilkerson wrote on Facebook that, in a quote, the VDOE would prefer that the data shows that no kids are being punished due to the correlation between punishing kids and a poor graduation rate. Just roll that around on your tongue for a moment. The Department of Education of the State of Virginia would prefer the data to show that no kids are being punished, that the students in their public schools are flawlessly well-behaved. That's the preference of Virginia's education bureaucrats, as rogue students wander the hallways fighting and screaming obscenities at teachers. Stock up on canned food, citizens, and big drums of purified water. Get some firearms and training in how to use them. Seek out like-minded citizens and socialise with them. There's strength in numbers. Civilization? What, you mean that stuff that used to be taught in schools? Forget about it. And now, our closing miscellany of brief items. Imprimis. I mentioned last week the three rocks that British schemes for immigration restriction invariably hit, causing the schemes to founder and sink. The three rocks are... One, the 1951 UN Refugee Convention. Two, the European Convention of Human Rights. Three, Britain's own 1998 
Human Rights Act. The first of those rocks is not just a problem for the Brits. Daily Mail Online reported on November 21st that South Africa is planning to withdraw from the UN Refugee Convention and its 1967 Protocol on the Status of Refugees. Why? Quote from the Mail. So the government can restrict immigration and send refugees back to countries that are not deemed dangerous. End quote. You wouldn't think South Africa would be much bothered by illegal aliens. The place is an economic basket case. Electricity and other services breaking down. Health care and education starved of funding. The youth unemployment rate, that's ages 15 to 24, 61%. That's just youth unemployment. The overall rate is somewhere in the range 33 to 42%. Why would anyone want to immigrate, legally or otherwise, into that dump? Well, just as your mother told you, there's always someone worse off than yourself. Dire as things are in South Africa, in neighbouring countries they are direer. There are high rates of illegal immigration from Zimbabwe, Mozambique, Lesotho, Somalia and elsewhere. Some South Africans believe that the government is whipping up anti-immigrant feeling to deflect attention from its own failings. See, it's not because of our incompetence and corruption that you're unemployed and hungry. It's those foreigners taking your jobs. Whether they can successfully sell that to the electorate, we'll find out next year. South Africa is yet another country holding a national election in 2024. The exact date is not yet determined. It'll be sometime between May and August. And since I've added another to your list of 2024 elections, I may as well add yet another. Taiwan, January 13th. It's going to be a boom year for elections. Let's hope the Taiwan result doesn't cause an actual boom. Item. You've probably heard about the ructions at OpenAI, the artificial intelligence outfit allied with Microsoft. I say allied with because OpenAI is actually two things. I refer you to my monthly diary for September, in which I discussed the new book The Coming Wave by Mustafa Suleiman, the co-founder of the AI company DeepMind. In that book, Suleiman discusses at length the prospects for AI in coming years and the problem of containment. By that, he means 
the importance of directing AI and other cutting-edge technology to social good, when they are also capable of great evil. I said that OpenAI is two things. One of those things, the one yoked to Microsoft, is a straightforward tech firm looking to make a profit. The other thing, embodied in the OpenAI board of directors, is a non-profit to supervise containment, keeping AI on the rails of social good. Sam Altman, co-founder of OpenAI, was removed by the board last Friday. No one seems to know why. Possibly he was being too deferential to Microsoft. Whatever the cause, the OpenAI development geeks raised an angry mass protest. On Tuesday, Altman got his job back and most of the board members were out of theirs. It's hard not to see this as a setback for the notion of containment. I'd like to hear Mustafa Suleiman's opinion. Item. Might we be getting close to peak DEI? The Iowa Board of Regents has voted to abolish DEI in all state universities. Of the recommendations listed in the announcement, I particularly liked this one. Quote, Explore potential recruitment strategies for advancing diversity of intellectual and philosophical perspective in faculty and staff applicant pools, end quote. Hey, perhaps I should apply for a job over there. Do they need any math instructors? Item. Elsewhere in EdBiz, the evil, stupid doctrine of disparate impact is eating its corrosive way through job requirements. The jobs here are for social workers in Washington, D.C. You have to be licensed to do social work in the capital, and to get a license you have to pass an exam. It's not a severely academic exam, only a series of, quote, multiple-choice tests which ask social workers what they would do in hypothetical scenarios, end quote. As with well-nigh any kind of written test, there are, nonetheless, different pass rates by race. Most infuriating to the equity people, between 2018 and 2021, 76% of white test takers passed the bachelor's level exam the first time, while the corresponding rate for black test takers was only 33%. DC has a solution, though. The district's city council is considering dumping the test. That's always the solution, isn't it? 
Well, let's be thankful for small mercies. At least these aren't air traffic controllers. Item. I have a burr under my saddle about the prosecution and the fantastically long sentences handed out to white people involved in the deaths of black troublemakers. Derek Chauvin and his colleagues for the death of George Floyd and the Brunswick Three for the death of Armored Arbery, both in 2020. The verdicts in all these cases seem to me highly dubious. Just brazenly political, in fact. The sentences are vindictive and cruel. A friend I discussed this with said these so-called trials were just legalised lynchings. I disagreed. Lynchings... 27% of which were of white people, remember? Lynchings happened in small rural districts where everyone knew who the no-goods were. Some high proportion, I'd guess it was a very high proportion, of lynch victims were guilty of the thing that they were lynched for. Derek Chauvin was no way guilty of murder. A guy committing murder does not look the way Chauvin looked in those pictures taken at the scene. He got a 22 and a half years state sentence regardless. And then, with the usual double jeopardy twist, 21 years on federal charges. Monday this week, the US Supreme Court rejected an appeal from Chauvin on the state charge. They didn't give us any reason why they refused the appeal. He has a separate appeal pending on the federal charges. Roddy Bryan, one of the Brunswick Three, who did nothing to anybody, got a life sentence from the state and 35 years on double jeopardy. That's not justice. That's flagrant anti-white malice. And so on. Don't get me started. I therefore read with interest Miranda Devine's column in the New York Post the other day about the Floyd case. She is actually writing about a new crowd-funded documentary movie, The Fall of Minneapolis, which exposes what Miranda calls, quote, a shocking tale of injustice and perfidy and a ruthless political operation, end quote. Further quote, the film was produced by Liz Collin, a former anchor at CBS affiliate in the Twin Cities, who was taken off air during the riots and demoted because her husband, Bob Kroll, was the Minneapolis Police Union chief at the time. End quote. The film is an hour and a half long. If you don't have time to watch it, please at least read Miranda Devine's New York Post column online. 
Our justice system is quite seriously rotten. She describes some of the worst of it, the parts that stink to high heaven. That's all I have, ladies and gents. Heartfelt thanks to you this Thanksgiving week for your time and attention, your emails and donations. Concerning which latter, do please watch Lydia and Peter make their case here at vdare.com and help if you can. Thank you. I'd like to offer a rationale based on some theme in the foregoing to justify my choice of sign-off music. Unfortunately, I can't. I just want to hear some righteous 70s rock music. Here's one of my favourites from Dr Hook. Vocals here mostly by Ray Sawyer. There will be more from Radio Derb next week. Don't touch me. Hey, Ray. Hey, Sugar. Tell them who we are. Well, we're big rock singers. We got golden fingers. And we're loved everywhere we go. That sounds like us. We sing about beauty and we sing about truth. At $10,000 a show. Right. Take all kind of pills to give us all kind of thrills But the thrill we never know Is the thrill that'll get you when you get your picture On the cover of the Rolling Stone Rolling Stone Wanna see my picture on the cover Wanna buy five copies for my mother Wanna see my smiling face on the cover of the Rolling Stone I got a freaky old lady named a cocaine kitty who embroideries on my jeans. I got my poor old gray-haired daddy driving my limousine. Now it's all designed to blow our minds, but our minds won't really be blown. Not the blow that'll get you when you get your picture on the cover of the Rolling Stone. Rolling stone. Wanna see our pictures on the cover? Stone. Wanna buy, buy.